Today we uh, begin a sermon series, a learning series in the life of our community called Almost Divine Consciousness, A Theology of Technology. The sermon title for today is The Technological Society. I've chosen these two texts, the one that Kate just read and the one I'm about to read to help ground in some ways uh, this conversation, uh, but perhaps even use these texts as a springboard to get to deeper conversations that I think we need to be having in this technological age. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words, and as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, these ancient texts to us, uh, even as you open our minds and our hearts to what it means to be human, what it means to be your friend, what it means to be a follower of your son, what it means to be empowered by your spirit to live faithfully in this technological age. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the seeds of this sermon series were planted uh, in my mind in late February and early March, following two very meaningful conversations with members of this church. The first con conversation, rather, was with an insightful and thoughtful senior member of our community. During our discussion, the topic of technology came up, and with defeat and lament in her voice, she said, I can't keep up with how quickly technology changes. I don't understand it, it moves too fast, and if I can't keep up, I know I'll be left behind. Now this wasn't the first time I heard someone speak about their frustration in trying to learn or trying to develop skills to navigate our technological world, but it was the first time that I had a deeper clarity, maybe a deeper discernment on something that was operating below the surface. While she and while many of us may have difficulty working the camera on our smartphone, or ordering food through DoorDash, or even creating a group text message, it seemed to me that below the surface, below the surface, what she was concerned about was her place. She was concerned about her value, about her identity in our rapidly changing 
technological world. The second conversation was with a man from our congregation who has had success as a tech entrepreneur. He's in his 50s, and unlike uh, the first conversation partner, he's quite competent in the use of technology. He can order food online. He can create a playlist on Spotify. He can order a ride share, and he can check in for his flight with the Delta app. He does all of this with relative ease. With his professional and personal familiarity, with his openness, with his expertise, with his competency, with technology, I was surprised to learn in this conversation of his growing apprehension about the light speed of advancement with artificial intelligence and the lack of ethical and moral criticism and conversations surrounding this burgeoning platform. He expressed in this conversation a genuine trepidation. It was verging on fear as to what AI might mean to the future of humanity and the future of our world. So those conversations opened my eyes to two big ideas. The first big idea is this. What it means to live as a citizen of the 21st century is not just a matter of competent or incompetent utilization or acquired knowledge of technologies, of devices, of machines, of technological instruments. To live as a 21st century citizen means that our sense of identity our sense of place, our sense of value, and even what it means to be human is dictated and decreed by a pervasive technological worldview that touches every sphere of our existence. Touches every sphere of our existence. The second big idea is this. There is a growing gap, and it continues to get wider and wider between the speed of technological advancements and the ethical reflections upon those advancements. As it turns out, these concerns are shared not just, not just by ethicists or theologians or moral philosophers, but by many so-called technologists as well, like my second conversation partner. You may have even noticed over the past six months to the better part of a year that there has been a story or podcast or news feed or blog produced every day about these technological advancements and what, and what rather they might mean uh, for the human race and for our planet. The truth of the matter is that ethical and moral considerations are having a hard time keeping up with the pace of advancements with artificial intelligence, biotech, and bioengineering. Now, there, there is a growing number of uh, voices among biblical scholars and theologians uh, offering evaluation and critique of these advancements. Uh, but most of those voices, I, I think, are still in the academy. They're still in classrooms. They're, they're still sort of far away from what I would call the everyday experience of ordinary people of faith like us who are trying to make sense of what it means to be a friend of God and follower of Christ in a technological world. In my opinion, what has been offered, and there has been some content offered from pulpits and Bible studies and blogs, I think what has been offered oftentimes misses the point 
These offerings, more times than not, focus on what we might call the fruit or the products of the technological age. There is a heavy focus on devices, instruments, scientific advancements, and machines that invite us to judge those products with what I would call a simplistic ethical lens that gives a thumbs up or a thumbs down with technological devices. So I want to elevate the two texts set before us this morning to demonstrate uh, what I mean. First, uh, I'm going to work backwards uh, from the text that I read in Genesis 11, the, the Tower of Babel story. Human beings are using technology, right? They're using technology, the construction of a great tower, to make a name for themselves, to achieve godlike status, to reach divinity. We read a text like this and uh, automatically we infer that we should give it a thumbs down, right? Like you should not use the device of a tower to make a name for yourself or to try to be like God. Simple thumbs up, thumbs down. Tower of Babel story, we give it a thumbs down. You go to Genesis 6, working backwards again, and you have this marvelous feat of technological ingenuity in Noah's construction of the great ark. And it's that piece of technology, and as an aside, it probably is the most astounding technological advancement described in all of scripture, the ark. It's that technology that God used to save Noah and his family and the animal kingdom from the flood. And so from this text, we infer that it's quite possible that technology can be used to serve God's purposes, and so we give that a thumbs up. In summary, this simplistic ethical lens declares from one technological device to another, whether it's used for good for God's purposes, thumbs up, or is it being used for evil, idolatrous purposes, and we give it a thumbs down. In my opinion, the problem with this ethical frame is that it focuses too much attention on the utility of the technologies instead of focusing on the ethos or the values that make these technologies possible in the first place. What is more, being a moral being, you already intuit that a piece of technology or anything that humans create can be used for good or it can be used for evil. I can take that Bible and I can read it and I could start to understand who God is and who I am in relationship to this God who has created me. I could also take this Bible and throw it at you and hit you in the back of the head, right? We, we already know We already intuit, we already infer, we already know that technological products are neutral. We already know that. So I'd like to suggest that while products are neutral, the technological society is not neutral. The technological society is not neutral. It puts a stake in the ground, it lays a claim upon our lives. This concept, the technological society, is one I'm borrowing from French social critic and reformed theologian Jacques Ellul. And he uses this to reference the collective ethos in which human beings live. 
Now, when we think of the word society, we think about a group of people who organize themselves around particular goals and particular activities. The technological society is not a secret society, nor is a technological society only made up of technologists and scientists. The technological society is something that we all inhabit. It is part of civilization. It's part of our world, whether we acknowledge it or not. And this society, like any other society, believes it has a mandate to achieve certain goals. If we're to construct a theology of technology, the focal point must move away from just evaluating in a thumbs up, thumbs down kind of way, evaluating the products of the technological society. A robust theology of technology instead will focus on the ethos and the values of the technological society itself. In other words, we have to ask the why question. Why these products? Why are these products being produced? What are the goals the technological society is trying to accomplish? Uh, now this great thinker, Jacques Ellul, he was writing in the 1950s, and if you were in the Sunday school hour, I, I said that he was someone who was way ahead of his time. And he argues that at his time, when he was writing in the 1950s, that the goals of the technological society were power, efficiency, and reproducibility. Power, efficiency, and reproducibility. He was deeply critical of these goals. He believed that the, the technological society dehumanizes people as it sees them as a means to an end rather than seeing them having God-given intrinsic value regardless of their power, regardless of their efficiency, regardless of their reproducibility. He argued that technology with its emphasis on control and predictability tends to reduce human beings to mere objects or components within a larger system. People become subservient, he argued, to the demands and imperatives of technology, leading to a loss of autonomy and individuality. Alul, as I said, who was very much ahead of his time, argued that mass media, advertising, and political systems often employ technology to control and manipulate individuals' thoughts, desires, and behaviors. This is the true definition of propaganda, and he wrote an entirely different volume about that. This manipulation, he says, undermines critical thinking and the ability to make independent choices, and it further dehumanizes people by reducing them to either passive consumers or ideological followers, and sometimes both back and forth. He was writing in 1954. And we have seen this passive consumerism and the ideological battles of our age come to light. And so as we press on in the 21st century, I, I, am, uh, I am supposing that many of us are already cognizant of the formative effects of the technological society. Like, I'm assuming you're all paying attention. That you're paying attention to what the technological society is, is wanting to lay upon us. That you have been suspect, like Alul, 
that the end of human history is in power, efficiency, and reproducibility. And so over the past three generations since Elul, people have offered critiques that there is more to being human, there's more to being a society than living for the ends of power, efficiency, and reproducibility. And so what's actually happened in the 21st century is that these three, power, efficiency, and reproducibility, are no longer our goals per se, but they still are part of our consciousness as what I would describe as means to accomplish a new set of goals. So we're now gonna use, instead of making power, efficiency, and reproducibility our goals, we're gonna use power, efficiency, and reproducibility to achieve a new set of goals that are emerging in the 21st century. And it's at this point I wanna lean into the work of a contemporary historian and philosopher named Yuval Noah Harari. He wrote a very provocative and very challenging book called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. And Harari, first in this book, looks back and argues that the goal of the 20th, 20th century, particularly the latter half of the 20th century, the goals of that century were to eliminate famine, plague, and war. Those were our goals as human beings, as a homo sapiens, to eliminate famine, plague, and war. And he would contend, he makes the argument, that we have largely seen those goals realized. By looking at some of your faces, some of you are a bit puzzled by such a claim because we still have war, we still have hunger. There are famines from time to time. We just had a pandemic. What makes him think that we have ended or have put a real dent in famine, plague, and war. And his conclusion is life expectancy. It's life expectancy. In 1923, global life expectancy was 40 years old. 40 years old. A hundred years later, it is 73. And he argues that the reason for this has been our ability to end or at least curb and significantly reduce instances of famine, plague, and war, the three great killers of human civilizations. And so with these, large, with these goals rather largely accomplished, he submits that human beings, and this is where I would take a lull and say, now we're gonna use the means of power, the means of efficiency, the means of reproducibility, the technological society's emphasis on these things, that he believes that human beings have now begun to imagine an entirely new set of goals for the 21st century. And those goals are threefold. The quest for immortality is number one. The quest to live forever. Number two, uninterrupted and unremitting happiness, which he would go on to describe as happiness that never ends through technology that permanently manipulates or changes our biochemistry so that we may exist in a perpetual state of bliss. And the third goal he lifts up is godlike power, the ability to build upon our technological power block by block by block. The book title, Homo Deus, some of you Latin scholars have already figured out, is Latin for human God or God-human. 
And Harari asserts that artificial intelligence, that bioengineering, that brain and gene and DNA modification, that with these advancements, he believes that homo sapiens are making a conscious or subconscious choice to overcome our biological limitations that may have us, in fact, evolving into a new species, a species he calls Homo Deus, the divine humans. Now, by your body language, by your faces, I can tell that for some of you, this seems a bit too science fiction-y for you. Even so, if you told people in 1923 that global life expectancy would increase by 83% in just 100 years, they may have called that science fiction-y too. If we see the same statistical increase, that will mean in the year 2123, global life expectancy would reach 134 years old. Far-fetched, perhaps. Just like it was far-fetched for those in 1923 to think that human beings would live into their 70s, their 80s, their 90s. This month we celebrate the 100th birthday of our oldest member, Ted Shirley. They would have called that science fiction. For those of us of a certain age, we, remember, we may remember uh, the television show, The Jetsons. Remember that show? It was first aired in the 1960s. This futuristic family had access to flat screen TVs, handheld devices, drones, video conferencing, smart watches, holograms, and my favorite, a robotic vacuum. <laughs> Items that were hard to imagine being part of our world at that time. What seemed back then to be far-fetched is now absolutely common, common, ubiquitous, ordinary. I mean, keep that in mind before we quickly dismiss Harari's reflections about what we're going to strive for as we press on in the 21st century. Now, if Harari is correct in his assumption that human beings have largely accomplished the goals of ending famine, plague, and war, and have now taken on a new set of goals, immortality, uninterrupted happiness, godlike power, then the Christian and the Christian church must ask, are these goals the goals of the kingdom of God? Are these goals the goals of the gospel of Jesus Christ? In John 10.10, Jesus said, I've come to give life, and I've come to give it abundantly, or I've come to give it to the full is it possible, can we entertain for a moment, is it possible that this abundant life or this fullness of life is realized in immortality or realized in uninterrupted happiness or realized in godlike power? Is the realization of such ambition the culmination of what we pray each and every week in the Lord's Prayer, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If it is, then Christians have a moral obligation to strive for a world in which nobody dies, where unremitting happiness is accessible to all, and where we flawlessly perform and enact what those who came generations before us would call miracles. If it's not, if it's not, then the Christian and the Christian church must be willing and ready to offer a critique and an alternative moral vision to these pursuits. So let me land the plane with this. 
A robust and resonant Christian theology of technology will shift its attention away from technological products and focus instead on the values and the ends and purposes of the technological society. Attaining power to reproduce effective means to achieve immortality, unremitting happiness, and godlike abilities. A robust and resonant Christian theology of technology will also, of course, turn our focus and attention to Jesus Christ, the one true homo deus. He's the one we confess to be fully God and fully human in one person. And this homo deus declared that his mission was to bring life and bring it to the full and bring it to abundance. So we have to ask, does a full life mean immortality? Or does a full life mean a life, no matter how many days we have, that strives to flourish in the love of God, love of neighbor, and love of self? Not quantity, but quality. Or does it mean striving for both? Does a full life mean the quest for uninterrupted happiness through manipulated chemical reactions in our brains and bodies? Or does a full life mean the quest for joy, something that's experienced in the depths of one's soul, as we affirm that under the sovereignty and love of God, in fact, all things will be made well? Or is it a pursuit of both? Does a full life mean the pursuit of God-like power or should we pursue in bold humility the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us that, that Jesus did say would help us to do greater things than even he did in his earthly ministry? Or does it mean the pursuit of both? These are just some of the theological questions that emerge in this conversation. Uh, in this series, we're going to get more questions than we're get answers because as we begin to have the building blocks of a theology of technology, we need to set the field and set the table. And we do that by asking questions, by offering reflections, and by trusting by God's grace and providence that we will discover in time as a community together what it means to be a more faithful friend of God, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, even in this iteration of the technological society. Amen.